Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Today's guest is Christian Cantrell, sci-fi thriller author and head of design prototyping at one of the world's largest software companies. Christian explores science and technology that don't yet exist in order to put characters in situations in which they can discover things about themselves that would otherwise have been impossible. Christian, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. You have a book out called Scorpion that came out a few months ago this year. And the first thing I noticed, now since my day job is writing about computers, the first thing I noticed is it's one of those rare books that gets all the computer lingo right. You know, you often read, th especially thrillers and techno thrillers, and you, you hear a lot of buzzwords, but if you know anything about it, they don't make sense. And obviously, you're a software engineer, you work for Adobe, so that must have been the easiest part of writing this book. <laughs> yeah, in some sense, that 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 did come very naturally for me. Um, it's really important for me to get that stuff right for two reasons. Um, one is that I don't want people who do understand the technology to kind of roll their eyes and think that I took shortcuts and you know, stuff like that. So I, I feel like uh, I feel a responsibility to get it right for the people who are in the in the sort of tech community. Um, but I also do it because um, because I want all of the technology uh, that I write about to really feel familiar to people. And so I'm typically writing, uh, you know, what's often referred to as five minutes in the future. So, um, you know, there's there's unfamiliar technology, but you should always be able to relate to it and be able to sort of connect it back to your experiences. And so uh, you know, it sort of keeps me honest to, to, you know, I don't sort of invent things that I don't think are necessarily possible. And, you know, some of the technology in the novel is, is even clunky uh, and people struggle with it. And I think that's, you know, I think it's unrealistic to write about the sort of magical technology that does everything and always works. And when we look back at the past of science fiction, I don't think any science fiction authors predicted the internet. None of them predicted the power of databases, encryption, and those sort of things. And you had communicating devices, but no one ever thought it would be a phone with video in your pocket. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I like I like to um, to try to think about what the evolution of those technologies are. And, you know, that's that's what I mean by sort of five minutes in the future. So, you know, it goes a little bit further. And in the book, you see some you see some AR uh, you know, so and, and I think that's, you know, absolutely coming. Uh, so we see, you know, some technology that seems a little exotic and a little exciting and kind of pulls us forward. But it's also, you know, people still have phones and they're and they're still, you know, they're getting into 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 sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, headsets that are worn, um, you know, for augmented reality and mixed reality and, and stuff like that. Um, but uh, but again, I, I think it's important to for me, what I like to do is I like, you know, I like for people to be able to re relate very much to the characters, but also very much to the to the technology as well. Yeah, the technology is a character in the novel, and I won't say why, but it becomes a character as the novel progresses. There is this expression that is told to people who are learning to write, write what you know, and you've obviously applied this in writing about the technology, but you've also got a serial killer in the story. I guess you don't know that much about that, do you? I do not. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna go on record as saying I do not. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I have sort of listened to this podcast. I, I really like this podcast now. And um, on the very first episode, the, the guest you you interviewed said that, um, you know, people have always told him to write what he knows, but he likes to write what he can imagine. And uh, and I loved that. I, I'd never heard that somehow. Um, and but I love that. I've now adopted that. Uh, and so, you know, 
I, um, I write about what I know for sure, uh, but I also am not afraid to write about what I can imagine. Uh, and, you know, I love to, um, when I think about uh, writing about, you know, when I think about thrillers and crimes and twists and, and those types of things and, and plots, um, you know, I love to really think about all of the, you know, intricacies and all the, the clever ways uh, that those things can be set up and that, you know, people can sort of plan things out. Um, and so, no, it's not something I have any personal direct experience with, for sure. <laughs> but um, but it's certainly something that I, I really love to spend time um, daydreaming about. In addition to explaining the technology, you're introducing a lot of interesting ideas about the technology. And I'm going to quote from pretty early in the book, two characters are talking and one says, do you know the only way to keep information safe? The other person says, tell me, the cost of stealing it has to be higher than its value. Securing information is less about encryption and more about the cost of decryption. It's all economics. And I found that a really interesting idea that could almost be, you know, an article in Wired magazine. Yeah, I don't think that people appreciate the extent to which um, technology is linked to economics. Uh, it's Technology is seldom about what can be done. Um, and it's much more about what can be done um, in, a, in, in an economically viable way, what can, what can be mass produced, what, um, you know, how you can bring uh, the price down to where it can be, you know, um, it can be adopted at such a scale that the margins are, are such that it makes sense, right? I mean, et cetera, et cetera, right? I can, you know, keep using all this jargon, but, uh, you know, technology is, um, you know, William Gibson has a quote that says, you know, the future is already here. It's just not widely distributed. And I think he's kind of getting at a lot of the same things. Um, I think that he's kind of getting at um, some of the economics of it. So, you know, we have in the story was one of the things that's really interesting in the story is that you have this this government agent, Quinn Mitchell, and then you have the person she's chasing, Ren Beer. Uh, and, you know, he sort of sources his technology from the private sector. Uh, and so it's very exotic and it's things that he has custom built uh, for him. And it's, you know, you can see that it's maybe 10 years ahead of what Quinn has, which is stuff that, you know, the federal government can buy and equip with a bunch of, you know, equip a bunch of agents with and that can be supported by their technicians and that, you know, can be supported when she's out in the field if something goes wrong. And that's a whole different set of requirements. It's the high tech equivalent of the Crown Victoria car. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So so I, I really love that idea. And I don't like to cheat with technology. I don't like to invent something that I don't think is economically viable. Uh, you know, when you talked about, you know, people not not predicting um, various things in the future, it's largely because they get the economics of it wrong. And if you can if you can figure out, um, you know, not just what's possible, but um, what's going to be profitable, then you're going to do a better job at understanding where we're headed. I like science fiction where the five minutes in the future ideas are believable. And there's one that I noted, which I thought was really cool. You say he isn't at all concerned about what he touches because he's wearing polymer obfuscation gloves. Each glove you pull out of the box promises five forensically distinct, completely randomized fingerprints. And I thought that's such a clever idea. And yet it just sounds like something that is just five minutes away. Yeah, I think, um, and you know, there's there's something called, I think, uh, uh, like a bio bag or something that he has um, with him as well, where he can, he can really, you know, forensically... Um, uh, he can kind of ca cause this sort of forensic static in his environment. Uh, and so, you know, uh, you know, th there's always this cat and mouse between, um, you know, between uh, criminals and um, and those who who attempt to apprehend them. Right. And, you know, as as you know, the law as law enforcement is stepping up their game, 
you know, as they become, um, uh, you know, as DNA analysis becomes more prevalent and cheaper and it's easier to collect evidence from from scenes, um, you know, criminals have to respond accordingly. Uh, so, you know, how are you going to do that? Um, how are you going to, you know, you have to be able to touch things. So, you know, it's probably only a matter of time before someone invents those gloves. Uh, hopefully I haven't inspired it, but, um, <laughs> you know, I think that that's coming. And, you know, it isn't just that he wears gloves so that there are no fingerprints. He wears gloves that have fingerprints that require all of them to be checked. And they, those have to be, uh, those have to be um, uh, stored in a database as well. So if the same glove gets used in multiple crimes, they can then link them. And he's causing all of this, um, uh, all of this overhead for law enforcement that slows them down very intentionally um, so that that gives him the head start. Yeah, he's introducing chaos into it. And I assume that the idea of fingerprints, not to go too deep into technology, is kind of what we're seeing in this artificial intelligence that's creating human faces, headshot photos. And you probably just train an AI with some of the variables for fingerprints, and you could make countless different types of fingerprints. We should not we should maybe cut this from the podcast so no one gets an idea, or you should patent it, one or the other. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, I'll, I'll file an application as soon as we're done here. One thing that I appreciated was your reference to Hamlet throughout the book. I think I've mentioned on the podcast already, I live three miles from Stratford-upon-Avon, William Shakespeare's hometown, and it's quite reassuring to see not only references to a couple lines from Hamlet, but also a murder inspired by the murder in Hamlet. Yeah, um, it's funny because, you know, up until now, we've been talking about technology and, and science fiction and, and futurism, and, and suddenly now we're talking about, uh, you know, literature. Um, and uh, and that very um, accurately captures, I think, who and what I am as a writer, because um, I, you know, have a career in technology and have for for decades. Uh, but um, I didn't study computer science in school. I studied literature and creative writing and uh, and some theater. And um, so, you know, these two things in my mind come together very organically. Uh, so, you know, hopefully, you know, hopefully you didn't feel like it, it sort of stuck out. I mean, hopefully it, it, it felt like it was well integrated and and sort of you know, somewhat uh, inevitable uh, in the, um, you know, in the, the telling of the story. So, um, you know, I, I love that kind of stuff. Um, I often will speak, you know, quotes or allusions um, into my into my books or stories here and there. Um, I'm really inspired by um, by the great writers, uh, by what they were able to do. Um, and even though I'm writing about, you know, serial killers and CIA agents, and um, all kinds of futuristic technology. Um, I still love how important it is to get um, the language right. And in some ways, it's a private joke. You mentioned before we started recording that no one else has mentioned this to you in the interviews you've done. So the handful of people who are going to get it are going to appreciate it. And I guess in some ways that kind of makes you happy that there are just a handful of people who get it, right? Yeah, that's enough for me. Um, and I, I sneak that stuff into, I have a lot of details in my stories and in my books that I, I assume that only a handful of people will get. In the software world, you'd call it an Easter egg, maybe? Easter eggs, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So I have lots of Easter eggs, and I love it when people find them. So let's talk about your publishing career, because this is really interesting. You started out self-publishing. You've published now four novels. You're now with Random House. Can you walk through the timeline of what you've done? Yeah. I um, So I've been you know writing uh, you know ever since I can remember, but I decided to write a science fiction novel in, I don't know, maybe 2007 or 2008. Um, 
And that's uh, that's when um, you know I really got serious about trying to get published and have you know um, a career or at least a side hustle as a writer. Uh, so I wrote my first novel, Containment, and um, you know this was I think in 2008 or 2009. If, if you know if the audience re- recalls, the economy was horrible back then, and publishing was um, was a really tough industry back then for various reasons. A lot of it technology related, and um, but a lot of it also just having to do with the economy. Uh, and, um, so I was not able to get, uh, get an agent and I was just accumulating, you know, rejection after rejection. So, um, I decided, you know, it was very odd to me at that, at the time to think that I sort of had to get someone's permission to publish something because I was also doing a lot of blogging and I built Macromedia's and then Adobe's, uh, you know, blogging platforms and, you know, everybody had a voice at the time because of, you know, technology. And so I, I thought it was very odd that I sort of had to, you know, ask someone's permission so I just uh, so you know Amazon had um, what they now call Kindle Direct Publishing um, available. So I wrote some tools to build eBooks because even building eBooks back then were was really challenging. But I I wrote some some command line scripts to compile what I'd written into these eBooks, and I was able to you know do it very efficiently. And so I published uh, my first novel, Containment, um, myself, and it sold very well. Uh, and then Forty Seven North, which is uh, Amazon's science fiction imprint approached me and said, Hey, we'd like to, um, we'd like to publish containment and two, uh, you know, two more books, um, two more future books. So I, I signed up with them and, um, published my first three books, uh, and the order of them was containment, um, and then Kingmaker and then Equinox, which is a sequel to containment. Um, and, uh, and then, um, wrote a bunch of short stories and kind of tried to make some progress in Hollywood, um, before deciding to write, um, uh, Scorpion, which was actually Scorpion, was actually an expansion of a story called The Epic Index, which was optioned by Fox, uh, which is now Disney, um, and that gave me the opportunity to write the full-length novel with with Random House. So, what's next? Um, well, uh, I have um, you know a couple things in development. Um, I have a, a story called um, Kagan, which is in development with TriStar, and then I have a, a story called Brainbox, which is in development with. Um, with Hulu and Fox uh, TV studios. And I, and I'm hoping maybe there's some opportunity for me to be somewhat involved in that. Um, we have to wait and see. Um, but I'm also working on another novel called day shift, which is, um, very close to, um, to having a first draft. Uh, and, um, you know, hopefully we'll get that, we'll get that out in the next few months. So are you planning to give up your day job anytime soon? <laughs> yeah. I, I ask myself this question a lot. Um, I'm actually on, on sabbatical right now. Um, I'm not working currently. Uh, I decided to take some time off for the launch and to write the next book, uh, which is why I've been able to make so much progress on day shift so quickly. Um, but, um, it's hard to say, you know, um, I go back and forth all the time. I love my job and I love the people I work with more importantly than loving my job. I love the people I work with and I love working on creativity tools. You know, as you mentioned, I work for for Adobe, uh, um, and I love, you know, empowering people creatively. So, um, I haven't decided entirely, but I know the one, I don't know if I'm going to give up my Adobe job. I know for sure that I will not give up writing. So no matter what I do, I will keep writing. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how you use Scrivener in your writing. Great. Writing a book, screenplay, or even a long article is a juggling act. You need to find the right words and the right structure, keep track of research, and refer to notes. 
tailor-made for long writing projects, Scrivener is the go-to app for writers of all types. Scrivener combines a typewriter, binder, and corkboard in a single app. A project outline makes it easy to get an overview of your work and flip between sections. Refer to research alongside your writing and just drag and drop to rearrange your work. Write in any order in sections as large or small as you like and let Scrivener stitch it all together when you're ready to share your words with the world. With Scrivener, you'll find everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone. Download the free trial from ScrivenerApp.com. Right now with Scrivener listeners can get a 20% discount with the coupon code PODCAST. That's ScrivenerApp.com. So, Christian Cantrell, when did you start using Scrivener? Uh, well, I was curious about that myself, and so this morning I decided to go back and see if I could figure out uh, the day that I bought it, um, and I found an old email receipt. Um, it turns out I purchased, purchased it on June twenty second, 2008. So did you use it for your first novel? I did. Um, I don't think that I started the novel using Scrivener. I can't remember exactly. Um, I'm guessing what happened was I started using a different tool and didn't like it, um, and looked for an alternative um, and switched to uh, Scrivener pretty quickly. Um, and I've used it ever since for uh, four novels. I'm, I'm working on the fifth and for several short stories. So what's your approach when you're writing a novel with Scrivener? Um, I have a very unique perspective on Scrivener, I think, because um, I have a, uh, you know, my background is also, in addition to, to writing, um, I also have a background in, in engineering. Um, and so Scrivener is to writers as something called an IDE is to uh, software developers. And an IDE is an integrated development environment. The people who build Scrivener know this. Uh, and um, Scrivener feels like an IDE to me. Uh, and an IDE is an, is an application that's, that's specifically, you know, you can write code in Notepad or something if you want to, right? They're just text files, but it's insane to do so like long-term. So, you know, you have these applications that are extremely sophisticated uh, that are specifically for uh, for writing code. And, um, and Scrivener felt like an IDE for writing um, immediately. Uh, and so I, I loved it. It was, it was intuitive from the very beginning. I didn't read any instructions um, that I can really recall or documentation or forms or anything. I just kind of, it just worked the way I expected it to work. That's interesting because it is so different than say Microsoft Word, which is what a lot of people are used to. And there is a need to adapt as if you're driving a car on the other side of the road or do, because things are very different. Uh, the combination of having the actual text editor section and the organizational section is something that most people aren't used to. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I have to admit to primarily using it for the writing. Um, I, I have my own custom project template where I have, you know, my binder um, that's set up the way I like it, um, which is just draft archive and trash uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit of a minimalist, I, I suppose, when it comes to structure like that. Um, I use folders for parts of the books. And then inside that, I have folders for chapters. And inside that, I have text documents for sections. Uh, I love, um, you know, I love being able to reorder. Um, that's just, you know, Microsoft Word just makes that so hard. Um, and, you know, and I didn't have to adjust. I didn't have to think to myself, you know, oh, wait, I'm not scrolling. That's weird. I mean, scrolling was always weird to me um, because, you know, when you're writing code, you don't sit there and scroll millions of lines of code. I mean, that's insane. You you find the right file and you click on it and you edit. Um, so so that was always very, uh, very intuitive to me. Um, I like the synopsis uh, because I like having the corkboard view. So I use the synopsis. I use the notes um, quite a bit. 
Uh, and, um, and I love snapshots. Um, snapshots are fantastic. Um, snapshots are very much like what you would do with a version control system when, when writing code, uh, you would create a branch, uh, or something like that. And so, you know, when I, I like to, you know, I do a lot of editing and I rewrite things a lot, uh, which I think is, is good practice. Um, but, you know, I don't like to, you know, sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, make a copy of a document and give it a different name or something or copy and paste into another file or something like that. I just go and I create a snapshot and then I can, uh, I don't have to worry about it. I can just, you know, start deleting. And then, you know, and then split screen view is also fantastic. That's also something that you would, you see in every single IDE is being able to, you know, look at something, uh, you know, reference something here uh, and write something there. Um, the, you know, the way that I write is that um, I, I always want every chapter even every section of every chapter to have its own arc. Uh, so um, so you can really kind of, you know, uh, I mean, hopefully you saw this when you read Scorpion. Um, you know, every chapter has its own arc. It has a beginning and it has its end. And, you know, you, you, obviously you want to read them in order, but but they also stand alone somewhat. And I think Scrivener helps me do that to some degree, right? It isn't this long, uh, you know, um, scrolling narrative. It's they're, they're, the, the novel's made up of a bunch of narratives that, that are linked. You were talking about moving things around. In in the novel, you have you following one character, then you're switching to following another, and then back. Do you write all of the bits for one character, then the other, and then move them around to fit them in? What I've discovered about the way that I write is that um, I am completely inconsistent, and there are no rules whatsoever. <laughs> uh, and I and I have come to adopt that as my style uh, and to accept that because I I struggled against that for a while, and I said. You know, no, I should I should have a philosophy. I should write, uh, you know, all of one character's parts and then I should write the other character's parts and I should interleave them. That's that's rational. Uh, it turns out there's just no rules as to how I do it. Um, you know, I, I try to outline and then I abandon outlines uh, and I it all just happens very organically. And I've come to just accept that that's my process and it's messy. So um, so the thing that I like about Scribner, again, is that it does allow me to to work, you know, in any way um, that feels intuitive to me at the moment. So sometimes, you know, for for uh, for Scorpion, for instance, um, you know, maybe I would write a couple of Quinn chapters. You know, so the chapters are interleaved. They're they're the the perspective, the character perspectives change for each uh, for each chapter. Um, and so, you know, if I uh, you know have something on my mind and I'm really into it and I and I don't want to forget it and I just want to keep going with it, I might just write another Quinn chapter, another Renvier chapter, another Henrietta chapter, or something. And then go back and fill in with the other characters. But sometimes, um, typically, typically I will write more or less in order because I want to write in the way the reader will experience it. Um, and so I, I do want to. I don't mind changing gears because the writer has. To, uh, sorry, the reader has to change gears. And so I don't mind that responsibility because I always want to keep the reader in mind. Yeah, that makes sense. But coming back to the example of writing software, you don't always write software in order, and that means that you have a mindset that allows you to envisage these different possibilities, whereas most people, they're thinking of a narrative from beginning to the end. I mean, imagine if Jack Kerouac had Scribner when he was writing on the road. <laughs> yeah, so you never write uh, – well, I've never written uh, software sort of, you know, somehow chronologically or something like that, right? I mean, you know, you, the way – you know, you, you break everything up into these different, you know, classes and files and abstractions and, you you know – uh, and it's an art. It's an art too. It, it, software development is incredibly creative, which is something I, I don't think a lot of engineers 
get credit for. It's incredibly abstract and creative. Uh, and, and it is very much um, right-brained as well as left-brained. Um, and, you know, um, IDEs allow that to uh, allow that flow. They support that flow, just like uh, Scrivener does in the context of, uh, of long form. So you are a writer at the cusp of a potential long career. You've gone from self-publishing to Amazon's imprint to Random House, a major publisher. What sort of tips would you give to other writers who went through this path or at the beginning of the path and trying to get where you are? Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, I would probably try, uh, if you've written something that you think is good, I would probably try a traditional approach. I would try, you know, querying agents and, and going that approach. I really like working with agents and I like working with publishers and I love working with editors, which is something I had to learn. Uh, but now I love it. Um, so I would, I would encourage people to try that. But at the same time, that didn't work for me initially. Uh, and so I ended up self-publishing. And, um, and what I learned was that you don't need anyone's permission to do what you love. Uh, you know, now if you're, um, uh, I don't know if you're a lawyer or a doctor or a licensed plumber, I guess you need, you know, someone's permission, but as a writer, you don't. Uh, and so, you know, um, don't be afraid to, um, to, to, to have a go at it on your own. Uh, if you believe in your story and if you can go out there and prove it, and the way you prove it is through sales and through, through adoption and through, um, you know, um, some generating some discussion, then um, people, you know, agents and publishers will come find you. And then at that point, you might be able to have your pick. Um, you, it's possible. Now, it's possible that you've written something that's not great. <laughs> you know, and you have to accept that. I've certainly written plenty that's not great. Uh, and, but it's also possible that you've written something that, um, that you're, the agents that you're querying just don't get or the publishers maybe don't get initially, right? There are a lot of stories like that. Um, and if you can go out there and prove it and it's easier than ever to do so, then, um, then the the rest of the uh, the rest of the path will open up for you. I wonder if you have a specific writing routine. Now you mentioned you're on sabbatical now, so that's going to be a little different. But I'm looking at what is, I guess your writing room. It's very minimal with white walls. You've got a standing desk. There's not a lot of clutter. How do you work? Do you start in the morning, work until lunch? Do you just go in and out? What's your routine? Yeah, I write in the mornings. Um, that's when I'm uh, most creative. Um, so I, I get up and um, have a, a good breakfast uh, so I don't have to worry about eating. Um, I want, really want to be able to focus, um, you know, grab some coffee and, and go down into my um, office. This is a basement um, office, which, you know, I, I built myself and sort of customized and have it exactly the way I want. Um, and I usually write until uh usually until about one, sometimes two, if I'm having a good day. Uh, and then I'm, I'm spent. Um, now when I'm not on sabbatical, so I, I have the luxury of doing so now, uh, when I'm working at Adobe, I work California hours. So, um, I can get up early and I can get, you know, three, four hours of writing in, in the morning. And then, um, I can change gears around 11 and that's when people in California are just getting up. Right. You're on the East Coast, so there's a three-hour time difference. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. I'm, on the, I'm, I'm outside of Washington, D.C. So, um, so that's how I'm able to, to make those, um, those two commitments work together. Uh, now, it's, um, it's exhausting, and I, and I go to bed exhausted um, every night. But I, I love what I do in both, in both contexts, uh, so I'm, I'm able to sustain it. Are there any books you've read recently that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Um, you know, actually, and they could be about software or technology, nonfiction, anything. Yeah, I do read some. I do read some nonfiction. I usually have have a nonfiction book going, uh, but um, but I mostly read fiction. It's really what I love. 
Uh, and when uh, the UK version of Scorpion um, was published by by Penguin Michael Joseph, um, they were tweeting that uh, if you like uh, I Am Pilgrim by Terry Hayes and if you like Minority Report, you'll you'll love Scorpion. And of course, I knew Minority Report, I knew the book and I knew the movie, uh, but I had not read um, I Am Pilgrim. Um, and so I, I decided, well, I, I'd better read this if I'm being compared to, to Terry Hayes' novel. So I picked that up and read it um, and um, really liked it. And I think that's actually a really good description of Scorpion. If you like those two things, uh, I think you're really going to enjoy Scorpion. Um, and also to say very quickly, I, I recently came across a novella uh, called Folding, uh, Folding Beijing by a writer named Hao Jingfeng, um, which is, you know, was translated from, from Chinese, um, which was really, really creative and clever. Um, it's available online. Um, and, um, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, and I, I'm currently reading the book Thief, uh, which I missed, you know, when it came out and it was big. I don't know why I didn't read it then, but I'm reading it now. Um, and, I, and I love it. Okay, Christian Cantrell, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful discussion. Links in the show notes to your website, to the books that you've mentioned, and good luck with your next book. Thanks so much for having me. If you like the podcast, please follow it in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Scrivener, go to ScrivenerApp.com. Join us next month for another conversation on Right Now with Scrivener.